to be a citizen means that you have certain rights, certain privileges, and certain duties of maybe the city, the county, the state, or the nation that you live in. And you become, um, you become a citizen of a nation three ways. You didn't know you were getting a civics class this morning, did you? You become a citizen by birth. Uh, Kevin, who many of you know Kevin, Kevin's originally from the Congo, but he and his wife's son, Jonathan, was born here in Colorado. He's a U.S. citizen because he was, he was born here. You become a citizen by marriage and then by the process of naturalization. And there are many people who have dual citizenship. Um, I have some people that are citizens of the United States and citizens of Israel that I know, friends that I have. It just depends on, I guess, your circumstances. If you didn't know this, the Apostle Paul had a dual citizenship. He was born a Hebrew, but he also was born in a city called Tarsus, which made him, being born in that city, a Roman citizen as well. And that actually worked to his advantage if you read through the book of Acts when they weren't going to give him a trial for preaching the gospel and going against the Romans, so to speak. Um, he appealed and said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. I, need, I get to go before a court. I get to go before the judge. I have my Roman rights as well. Well, I believe everybody in this room probably close to is a citizen of the USA. But I want to tell you, and what we're going to talk about this morning is you're not only a citizen of the United States, but more importantly, you're a citizen of heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. Paul, to the Philippian church, he said, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty cool. First and foremost, you are a citizen of heaven. That's where your real citizenship um, is. And so we've been trekking through the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, and it's been, it's been great. I've had a lot of fun and uh, growth myself digging into this, and I've had good feedback on it, and that's always good to hear. But um, we, in the first 11 chapters, it's, it's a lot of theology, a lot of doctrine. A lot of mystical things that the Apostle Paul teaches us about who we are in Christ. Who we are because of the finished work of Jesus and what God has done on our behalf through His Son. And as we looked last week, in chapter 12, Paul takes this pivot. And he goes from all these positional truths about who we are in our union with Christ to how, do we, how does that translate into everyday life? How does that translate to how, how do we live out our position in Christ practically on a, on a daily basis? So we're at Romans 13 today. And what I want to answer the question in this chapter is this. How should my heavenly citizenship direct how I live in my earthly citizenship? How does my heavenly citizenship direct my life as someone who is in the world, but not of the world, right? As Jesus taught His disciples. Jesus said to, to His disciples, He said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. 
And salt in Bible times was very, a very important commodity. It was traded as, as money because it had so much value. Salt was a, he, um, a preservative in that you didn't have refrigeration, so you needed salt to preserve meat. We are called to preserve things in this world and to do, do good in this life. Salt's a healing agent, right? It heals. And salt actually causes us to be thirsty. When you eat something salty, it makes you thirsty. So us being salty, we're, our lives, our joy, the way we live, should cause someone who's not a believer to be thirsty for what you and I have. And we're to be light. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. That in this darkness, we can be light. So how should my heavenly citizenship direct how I live in my earthly citizenship. My first point isn't very sexy, but I'm going to do it anyway. First thing is I need to obey the law of the land. I need to obey the law of the land. Paul says this, Be a good citizen. All governments are under God. Insofar as there is peace and order, it's God's order. So live responsibly as a citizen. If you're irresponsible to the state, then you're irresponsible with God, and God will hold you responsible. Duly constituted authorities are only a threat if you're trying to get by with something. Decent citizens should have nothing to fear. Let me stop there for a sec. There are two basic functions of of a government. The first function of our government is put in place, and Paul is saying even by God, to protect its people. That's, that's the first role of government is to protect the people of that nation. And the second is like the first in that it's to protect from attacks from without and to protect from crime from within. Again, civics class in the Bible. But... Um, it's, that's important that we remember that because you know what? Power and authority can be abused. We all know that. We all know that. That's why I like how it's worded here. As long as it's peace, it's God's order. When it's not peace, then it's, it's not a, a godly situation. So sometimes people ask me, when is it okay to disobey the laws of the land? And I say, try to always obey the laws of the land. But if the laws of the land were ever put in place to tell you and I to do something contrary to the way of Jesus or to the kingdom of Jesus, we're going to be with King Jesus first. That's what happened to the early church, right? They put in laws that you couldn't worship Jesus or this, all this other stuff. And they said, well, you're not going to stop us from worshiping our creator. Do to us as, as you wish. We're told in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 3, to pray for all people in authority. Pray for governments. Pray for kings and people who who are ruling. And can I tell you how convicted I was as I meditated on that scripture? Because the first thing I do, and I'm sure you can relate, it's pretty easy to complain and not pray and just get mad. And think, ah, I want to learn how to pray before 
well, not even complain, pray as my first response to people that I don't have the same worldview with or the same values with or see life with? How much could we change if we really believed in the power of prayer rather than the power of my complaining? Because my complaining's not doing anything. And then Paul continues. He says, do you want to be on good terms with the government? Be a responsible citizen, and you'll get on just fine. The government working to your advantage. But if you're breaking the rules right and left, watch out. The police aren't there just to be admired in their uniforms. God also has an interest in keeping order, and He uses them to do it. That's why you must live responsibly, not just, avo- not just to avoid punishment, but also because it's the right way to live. Law enforcement officers, police officers, are part of God's purpose in the world. Their purpose is to serve and to protect their, their, their calling is to protect human life. That's their calling. Now, any sort of authority can abuse their power. That's a fact. I mean, pastors do it. Police officers can do it. Anybody can do that. We don't want to do that, but it, but it happens. But if I think about police officers and their calling to protect human life, I immediately went back to my high school days. And... Um, I w- didn't follow Jesus in high school. I didn't become a Christian until I was like 25. And we were at a party, you know, an old-fashioned high school rager, and uh, kind of like the movies from the 80s, because I'm a child of the 80s, right? And it might have been my parents that were out of town. I can't quite remember if it was at my house or whose house it was. But the cops showed up. Neighbors called the cops. It was too loud, too rowdy, etc. And I remember standing there in my letter jacket, my Arvada West letter jacket. And this police officer came and he, he looked three or four of us in the eye. And he was a real tall guy, thin, with a mustache. And he looked at us and he said, guys, I know you think I'm here to just push my authority on you, flash my badge throw a drag in your, in your good time you're having here. He said, I'm here because I love you. He said, I don't want to be scraping any of you off the concrete because you were drinking and driving or doing something foolish. That impacted my 18-year-old heart to see this guy in authority living out Romans 13. And fast forward about... Ten years later, maybe somewhere in that neighborhood, 10, 15 years later, um, I'm a follower of Jesus in ministry and all of that. And I'm at the, the old Christian bookstore. It's a mattress store now just around the corner by Chili's and all that. That used to be the family bookstore. And I was in there, and that officer from 15 years ago walked into the family bookstore. And I remembered him because I, I remembered what he looked like. And I went up to him and I said, you're not going to remember me, but I remember you. I said, told him what he had said and did and how that impacted me and how much respect that I had for him. And now I knew it. I put, you know, two and two together. You follow Jesus and you're using your calling as a police officer to glorify Jesus and his kingdom. That's the calling that's there. 
Why do police officers have a higher rate of suicide and depression than the general public? Think about their job. PTSD from uh, things they've witnessed and seen. The stress that can come with that. We live in a world that doesn't often respect authority anymore. It's suspicious of authority. I'd get sick of that pretty quick. He says, Paul says, don't live responsibly just to avoid punishment. But let's check that real quick. Fear of punishment is not the highest motivation for obedience, but it's better than having chaos in this world, right? It's better than a chaotic world. Self-government. It's one of the things the United States was founded upon. was the, your ability to govern yourself, to take responsibility for your life. If you've ever been to a third world country, you realize that's the first thing that you you see is that people don't self-govern themselves. When we go to the Dominican Republic, there's trash everywhere, even in the nice parts of the Dominican. People just throw their trash. And when uh, our missionary friends were here from the Dominican, that was the first thing he told me was, wow, there's no trash everywhere like there is in the Dominican. He said, yeah. And I said, yeah. And he said, people don't at home, they don't care. If they were here, they'd follow that rule. I was in El Salvador on my first mission trip, and uh, our host was a, a good friend named Juan. And one night we were doing something, and I noticed how people, especially on like motorcycles, did not stop at a stop sign. They just fly through that. And there was a really bad accident, and the guy on the motorcycle got hit by a car. And I I asked Juan, I said, mm, why do people not stop at the stop signs? Like, that's probably a good thing. He goes, there's no self-government here. He said, in the United States, you have self-government. People are taught that from a young age, that stop signs are not optional. Now I'm meddling in some of your driving habits, but <laughs> we'll talk about that later. If people will not govern themselves... There's got to be a fear of of punishment because speed limits are there for a reason. We all have, um, I think we have stored up guilt for speeding. And here's how I can prove that. Unless you always obey the speed limit. (laughs) All right. Uh, When you're obeying the speed limit, when there's a police officer behind you, right? You're looking down every five seconds, make sure you're going the speed, looking in the rear view mirror, making sure you don't do something. That's that stored up guilt that we have for the other times that we were going 50 and a 35, <laughs> just because we were late or whatever. But I think that's, that's an important point that Paul is trying to make here. Listen, live responsibility. You don't have to worry about that. Can I take a second and play, pray for police officers? We pray with me. Father, we're grateful for the peace officers in our community. God, help their marriages to be strong. Help them to overcome the trauma, uh, the difficulty, all the things that come with that, Lord. We bless them in the name of Your Son. Amen. Jesus was radical in the way he approached life, in the way he approached, you know, the world, his worldview. And there was a time where the 
Pharisees, they're always trying to trap Jesus in, into something to say, see, he's not the Messiah. And one time they asked Jesus, they said, should we pay taxes? Now, that was a big deal to uh, the Jews because they were under the tyranny of the Roman Empire. And so the Romans would get fellow Jews to become tax collectors who collected taxes on behalf of those who were oppressing the Jews, as well as they would take more and become rich. So tax collectors were not people's favorite. But the Pharisees are trying to see, is Jesus going to say, we shouldn't pay taxes? What's he going to do here? And they ask him that, and Jesus says, well, give me a coin. And they give him a coin, and he says, whose inscription is on this coin? They said, Caesar. He said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to God what is God's. I think that's a good approach to this because Paul goes ahead and meddles into our lives a little bit more here, and he says, that's also why you pay taxes. So that an orderly way of life can be maintained. Fulfill your obligations as a citizen. Pay your taxes, pay your bills, respect your leaders. I need to lighten it up after that. Two government entities. Would you rather be in a TSA line or a Department of Motor Vehicle line? (laughs) TSA? Do I hear a DMV at all? Going one. TSA is the one. I hate the TSA line. They've actually upgraded DMV. And I'm going to move on. So we need to obey the law of the land. Secondly, I need to obey the law of love. Obey the law of love. People people often claim they're motivated by love. But do we have a proper definition of what love really is and what love does? Paul continues, he says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. It's so important that we always remember that love is not a feeling. Feelings come and go. And it's not a feeling. Love does what's best for others. That's what love does. It does what's best for others. And thankfully, two incredible definitions of love we get in, from the New Testament and the apostles. The apostle John said that God is love. Father, Son, and Spirit. This perfect love union from eternity past to eternity future. God is love. Love is not a characteristic of God or an attribute of God. It is His very nature. It's His essence. And then Paul tells us what love is in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4. He says, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own way. Is not provoked. Does not take into an account a wrong suffering, or it doesn't keep score. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's the definition of love. When we say we love somebody, we do what is best for them. I want to speak to married couples for a second. And somebody in here, whoever, you you plan on getting married one day. I've heard people say things like this. I love you, but I'm no longer in love with you. I think that's terrible. Because are you saying to your spouse that you don't want what's best for them anymore? Or even flat out, I don't love you anymore. The root of that is believing that love is a feeling, an emotion, the googlies. Nothing wrong with the googlies. When you first twitterpated with somebody, that's a good thing. Remember Bambi, twitterpated? Uh, love's not a feeling, it's a choice to be patient, to be kind, to forgive, to prefer, to do what's best for the person whom we say that we love. In C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, in his chapter on Christian marriage, he said that when two people say, I do, they're not saying, they're not making a promise to feel, you're making a promise to do something. He said, no one can make a promise to feel love all the time. You're going to tick each other off. You're going to rub each other wrong. Even the best of marriages. So he said, if you begin to treat someone like you love them, that you're struggling with, maybe it's your spouse. He said, more often than not, the feelings tend to follow. When, by your showing love through your actions versus trying to muster up a feeling. When Jesus said that the world will know we're His disciples, He said it will be by how we love one another. That's every relationship you can think of. How do we treat one another? And I believe it was Andy Stanley who said this, but he said we can summarize being a disciple of Jesus by asking this question in in any given circumstance. What does love require of me? In your marriage, in your family, at the workplace, the person who's rubbing you wrong, the situation, whatever it is, what does love require of you? That's obeying the law of love and putting our neighbor ahead of ourselves. Love does what's best for others. So Paul's saying, obey the law of the land, obey the law of love, and then thirdly, I need to obey the law of light. You might think the law of light. Well, in the physical world, light, even when it's small, always expels darkness. It always expels the darkness. He says, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Some other translations say, put on Jesus. 
Like we all put on a shirt this morning. You took off the old and you put on the new. That's the Apostle Paul's daily sanctification um, method. Take off the old way, put on the new. Ah, Take off the old, put on the new. Jesus makes one of the most fantastic statements, in my opinion, in one of his I am statements. Says Jesus said this, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness. That's important. But will have the light of life. The context of that I am statement comes from John chapter 8 in the beginning when the Pharisees bring a woman who was caught in adultery to Jesus. And they're, again, they're trying to, to trap Jesus. And, and they come and they say, well, first of all, where was the guy? Why did they just bring the girl? That's a whole other sermon probably. But they bring this woman who was caught, they said, in the very act of adultery. They saw it. They said, the law of Moses says we should stone her to death. What do you say, Jesus? I love Jesus. No nonsense. Turning everything on its head. He says, okay, whoever of you is without sin, pick up a rock, pick up a stone. It says that Jesus knelt down and he began to write something in the dirt with his finger. We don't know. And then it says that each one of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, from the oldest to the youngest, began to leave this conversation because they knew, hey, I'm not without sin. And Jesus stands up and he looks around and he says to the lady, he says, where are all those who condemn you? She says, they've all left. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then he says, I'm the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you see the good news there? When you and I put into practice the way of Jesus, we're walking in the light. When I do the opposite of the way of Jesus, I'm walking in in darkness. So he says, you want to walk in the light? Do what I say to do. He says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So many people think following Jesus is a list of do's and don'ts and avoid this and avoid that. Don't ever dumb it down to that. Buddhists are better at denying their flesh than probably any of us in this room. But they're not following Jesus. Of course, that comes with following Jesus, learning how you know, to control ourselves. But the starting point is following Jesus and seeing Him and who you are in Him. If you ever want to know who you are in Christ, go read Ephesians 1 over and over and over. Your heart will leap inside of you to realize who you are and how Jesus sees you and your position in Christ. That's, that's what frees us from the bondages and the burdens. I know as I studied 
this chapter, there were a few things I found convicting. And maybe you've experienced a little conviction this morning too. It's a good thing. Because God doesn't do condemnation. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. He does convict because He's a good father. Just the way any good parent treats their children wisely and rightly. Our father ten times, ten million times better. He loves you. The Holy Spirit will convict us and say, Scott, don't say that. Scott, go apologize. That was that was a, a snappy word that you you I need need happened to me yesterday. <laughs> apologize to my wife. Part of that following Jesus is being good at apologizing. Take responsibility. Listen to the conviction of the Spirit. Don't don't put your fingers in your ears. He loves you. He wants what's best for each one of us. We stand and let's pray. Feel like the Lord wants me to remind somebody in this room that you're his child, you're his kid, and he loves you with perfect fatherly love. Jesus loves us with perfect brotherly love. We're his family. Receive that this morning. If you feel isolated, alone, you're not alone. You're in His family. You're in our family here at Novation. Father, thank You for the practical wisdom of this chapter that You inspired the Apostle Paul to give to a church 2,000 years ago that we get to receive from today I thank you for the practical stuff I need it we need it Lord where we felt conviction this morning help us to respond to that Lord thank you for the gift of repentance Lord it's a daily exercise for us when we realize we're going in the wrong direction that you give us grace to turn and go the right way, to change our mind, to change our thinking. Keep transforming us by the good news, the truth about who we are in Jesus. Lord, there's those in this room right now that are they're carrying burdens, physical burdens. Lord, release the gift of healing for anyone struggling there. Lord, where there's relational a need for relational healing. Help couples that are struggling to walk in peace and to forgive one another, to prefer one another, to make life better for one another. And those in marriage relationships who feel a little shortchanged right now, 
Help them to be, continue to be like you, Lord Jesus, and to serve, not to be served. Lord, I pray for those that are, that are single in our midst. Lord, fill the, the lonely today with your presence, your peace, your joy. Lord, I know you're close to the brokenhearted. May the brokenhearted sense your comfort. Thank you, Jesus, for your Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, we pray that you would fill us fresh and new today. That we can face today and this week with a fresh feeling of hope, a fresh feeling of joy, peace, and power that only you truly give. In Jesus' name, amen.